everyone, and welcome to another fantastic episode of Turban Thinker Talks. So today we're going to be talking about commercial real estate and strategic advising. We're joined from Paris, and apparently it's beautiful weather there, and I can't say the same for London because it's kind of cloudy and drizzly, but we're joined by um, a fantastic individual that I've recently met, Chris Igwe. So Chris runs his own international retail advisory firm, Chris Igwe International, and he provides services to luxury and premium brands, as well as shopping center owners and high street landlords. And boy, let me tell you something, they need advising more than ever right now, specifically shopping centers. So he advises on both strategic and implementational advice. And given his vast knowledge and experience in global retail, he's the perfect guy to host on the show. So Chris, thank you so much for joining me. It's really good to have you on Turban Thinker. Azil, thank you very much. I really appreciate being uh, invited. As you say, we got to know each other fairly recently, but um, I mean, you've got a, a packed background as well, but I'm uh, more than willing and uh, great to share with yourself and your, um, your audience. Thank you for the thank invitation. Thank you so much. So we had a great conversation a couple of weeks ago. I loved your energy. Uh, you know, your ex experience is phenomenal. It's vast. But most importantly, what I loved about you, Chris, is that you're totally grounded by your values and you're driven by that ethic. And I think that's something that, you know, we're going to be talking about today because it resonates with me on a personal level. So I'm really glad to have you into the show. But let's let's get into the questions. And I want to start by, li like I often do with my guests, let's talk about the early years. I know that, you, you know, you told me your parents had immigrated to the UK from Nigeria. I, I need to know about that journey. What was it like for them? And then also, what was it like for you? How did that shape you? And how did it sort of coin the values that represent you today? Uh, fascinating question. Um, it had, it's led me to delve into quite a bit of my, my past. Um, most of it, of course, lives with me on a daily basis anyway. Um, sure. In terms of my parents, my parents uh, were... Uh, originally educated, of course, in Nigeria as, as youngsters, but then they moved to the UK. Well, they met in the UK, actually. My father went to Cambridge um, and my mother was at a prestigious London school of um, for training teachers. And they, they met, long story short, they got to know each other in London and then moved back to Nigeria. And so we, the four children, were all born in Nigeria, elder sister and uh, two younger brothers, so four of us. And really... I would say it's kind of a combination of two cultures in a sense. It may sound rather strange, but having a sort of um, British upbringing and background and a relationship with a lot of people in the UK, but they were very, very deeply rooted in Nigeria and Nigerian culture and in our village where we lived. So very quickly, we as children learnt the values that they had established both for themselves and for us as well. And very simply, those values were, firstly, we were born in a Christian background, a Christian home. So that was really important as well. We grew up in the church. My father was involved in the, in the church, my mother as well. And through that discipline, upbringing and growth, we learned the values not only of being Christians, but also of, um, you know, human beings in general. And maybe just to give you a few examples of that, um, we had to learn to understand each other listen to each other, and also to understand the importance of being polite, being honest, helping other people, having integrity, all those really fundamental things that seem to be lost today, uh, I'm, I'm afraid to say, but we, we grew up with, with those. And, and I um, think that, you mean, I mean, when you say that, 
in listening to that, of course, that makes it even more personal to me because that's absolutely the foundation that I was raised. I mean, I, you know, my parents left the Middle East in the 50s and they were, you know, in the US and the UK. I, I was born in Iraq, was there for a year, but I've grown up in the US and the UK. And one of the things that they taught me was absolutely, and actually they didn't, you know, I, they didn't teach me, you know, I have to be honest, they exampled it. And this hmm. is how, and I think that's the difference. You know, I saw them live with their ethics. I saw them, you know, my father with his humility and my mother with their, you know, both of them charitable, you know, absolutely their faith was important to them. And so we were brought up in very similar environments, you know, having been brought up outside and not really living at home. And and then seeing that to your point, Chris, um, something that's really unfortunate because we don't see that and i agree totally that we don't see those values so much today and if if i guess if we did the world would not be in the state that it's in so yeah. i yeah. agree totally with that yeah absolutely, absolutely. We, we, mean, we've lost our compass we've lost our, our roadmap completely we have from we have what our parents should give us yeah mm. and and i think you know having conversations with individuals like yourself who are you know successful have a phenomenally uh, you know, solid and, and, and great foundation is very inspirational because I'm always saying to everybody that either coach, mentor, meet or come across, you have to have those are the grounding principles in which sort of enable you to lead the way in, in, in anything you do. It's, it's for me, it's like a checklist, you know, whether I'm a CEO or a creative director, it's a checklist for me, you know, subconsciously. So let's move on to your career because you started as a civil engineer and you worked on some, you know, phenomenal international product projects and they had won many numerous awards. So I want you to talk to us about those specific projects. And then how did that journey lead you to sort of joining global brands like Foot Locker, Gap um, as their European director for real estate? So that's a real, you know, skip and a jump, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I, I've not been orthodox in the way in which I've done things, uh, which I think is is part of how my life has become enriched. Maybe I can just start, um, Azul, with the fact that firstly, the intention be to become a civil engineer, my mum said that I was always putting things together, um, finding out how things worked and so on. She always felt I would be an engineer. And to be honest, I, I didn't know if I wanted to be a civil engineer. I can't say I started that that path. Um, yeah. If anything, I, I wanted more to be a chemical engineer than a, than a civil engineer. But I got into civil engineering because um, I happened to, long story short, meet up with uh, somebody who was going to be a mentor of mine in the civil engineering world. Um, he was uh, legendary at the time in his world. And so he encouraged me to go to um, Newcastle University, which is where I did my undergrad and then did a postgrad at um, Harriet Watt University in Scotland. And I started my journey then in a small consultancy practice, uh, basically designing roads, bridges, um, projects, etc. And then I went on to... Say, I love how you say basically designing roads and bridges. <laughs> basically, <laughs> you, Chris, not so basic. Someone like that. I love that. Okay. Well, I, I agree. I mean, when I look back on it, it seemed like, um, yeah, you know, anybody could do it, but I guess not everybody could. Not and, everyone, um, let me tell you. Creating infrastructure is not everybody's cup of tea, right? Nobody, no, yeah. It's, it, it's true. And even more uh, amusing, I guess, in that context is that um, I was sitting in Edinburgh designing 
roads and bridges in Libya, of all places. I'd never oh, wow. been to Libya, never have been to Libya, but um, that's where one of our projects was. So it was an interesting one. But um, yeah, then I went to, and that's where my first real, I guess, baptism by fire started. I worked on a project which was um, uh, groundbreaking, literally, at the time. It was IBM's first PC factory in Europe. And it was a very, very complex project. I was a young resident engineer in my mid-20s um, on the west coast of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of Scotland, a place called Greenock. And the reason why that was a great starting point was not only the complexity of the project and dealing with an American client for whom, as we all know, and I've, I've loved and continue to very, be very close to American companies, it was all about you know, the deal. It's got to be the deadline, got to get it yeah. done. And yeah. through this whole process, um, a dual carriageway caved in. Literally, the building was close to a dual carriageway. It caved in, so um, I had to then deal with um, the local authorities, the police, um, the various uh, services, environmental groups, et cetera, et cetera. And, of wow. course, it became a big legal battle because um, whose responsibility was it? Was it the designers? Was it the contractors? Was it the client for placing that project over there because it was literally a bog. I mean, it was just a, a very um, unconventional place to build a building, but it was done with what we call piled foundations. So you pile down into the, yes. the bedrock. Yeah. Um, and just quickly on that story, there it was the most boring project in one sense because I had to, as a young engineer, monitor the piled foundations and make sure they didn't go, you know, didn't fall basically, or didn't um, sink. Yes. If they did, it meant it was a problem. And, and honestly, in freezing cold weather, when there is no movement literally on the dial, you've got to go out every, every two, two hours at night to look at this blessed thing, which doesn't move. And you think, what on earth did I do to deserve well, this? Well, you know? not to stop. <laughs> Not to stop you on that, but on that, you see, guys, everybody listening, all you young entrepreneurs out there, you know, it doesn't come easy. Look and listen to this example. <laughs> I mean, you've got to put out people. You've got to, you know, you've got to take the challenge and take the good with the bad. <laughs> that sounds pretty bad. Okay. Bad was, yeah, it was bad. And then when, of course, the client says, you know what, I don't care whose problem it is. We're going to get this done on time. Oh, classic. Uh, that stays you know, with me for just... life. <laughs> oh, it, it was brilliant. And also because IBM actually selected me, I was due to leave the site. Um, it was a bit, you know, beyond my pay grade in terms of experience. And they were going to bring me back to, to Edinburgh where our offices were. And IBM said, no, they want Chris Igwe on the site. They'd seen what I'd been doing as a young engineer, managing, coordinating people. Yeah. And they just said, no, he's got to be on the site. So I learned through that incredible process, you know, meeting with all the top guys um, in various firms. It was, it was phenomenal. So um, that was that. And then very quickly, I guess, in terms of your other questions, I just wanted to share that in terms of forging of yes. my character and nature. Um, then I left and moved on to work on a project that is well known to, to the Brits in particular, Stansted Airport, um, yeah. the UK's third airport after Heathrow and Glasgow. I was responsible for the external facade of the building, which you might say, well, that's fine, but not very interesting. But what was interesting about it, it was, again, groundbreaking because the glass that is used on that building was made by an Austrian firm, uh, very, very high spec. And long story short, again, there was a problem. So I had to go to Austria to help I, I, sort I, I see a common thread here. <laughs> <laughs> I see a okay, common thread we'll get to in a little bit. <laughs> let's be clear. I don't go looking for problems, okay? And, and, <laughs> 
I don't, I don't know. Problems I don't know. I need to, to you. ask your kids and I need to talk to your wife about that. And then I'll get like a real deal. But <laughs> okay, if you say so. <laughs> That's what I believe. Uh, so that was a great, great process. Uh, worked on that. And then that same company decided they wanted to open a, a European um, office. We won a joint venture. That's when I moved to Strasbourg um, in the east coast, east side of France. Worked on, totally different, a paper mill that was being constructed, um, never done that before. And the construction manager, who I'd given quite a bit of grief to as a Frenchman, um, tried to bully me and uh, I wouldn't have it. So we got to a level of mutual respect. Anyway, he gave me the most complex part of the paper <laughs> We're mill. We're going to do a whole other podcast on specifically <laughs> that, because that's a deep dive right there. You can't just say things like that in passing. So he bullied me, <laughs> then we forged a mutual respect. Mm-mm, not on my show. <laughs> I shall make a note of that. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> okay, there was a process I used. That's kind of, you know, outwitting the uh, the opposition or whatever. So it was it yes. was fun. Anyway, he got... He got we had made we were well behind the project and so what i did which again was was fun is i made sure that the ceo of the and a major major company i won't name them i made sure the ceo was on the site every morning at 7 30 to get us back on track nice. he was not very happy about it but um he had to do it because it was uh, important to the to the project yeah and then um, whilst i was working on that and just a a little story which was one of my high points if you like in my career i was working on that project and the CEO of um, a major company in, in Europe contacted me. He said, Mr. Igwe, I've heard about you. Um, I want you to join my company. And I said, oh, I've just arrived here. I can't really you know, have a job to do. Um, yeah. He said, well, when will, when will you be ready? And I said, uh, why could you call me back in six months' time? I mean, to be honest, I, said, I just threw that out. I just thought, oh, he'll leave me alone. Uh, six <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> months to the day. <laughs> he was Swiss. So six months to the day, <laughs> he phoned me back. <laughs> And he said, Mr. Igwe, are ready? you ready to talk to me? And I said, I didn't really expect you to call me back. He said, well, I have and I am, and I want you to join my company. Fantastic. And he drove from Basel to Strasbourg, where I lived. I didn't know this all at the time. He drove there to literally pitch to me the fact that he wanted me to join the company um, and manage a project that was going south. Um, and it happened to be the, um, we knew it as the Vauxhall cross development project but most people who love James Bond will know it as the MI6 building and I was the senior project manager on that so a great um, great moment that's got to be a career highlight you know I drive by that building so many times and I love it I love it it's one of my my most beautiful landmarks in London I mean it really is it's absolutely phenomenal so that totally must have been I, I must have been a career highlight for you it was a career highlight and my toughest, I've had some tough assignments and tough projects and so on. And we'll talk about one or two of them, but that was probably my most difficult physically, emotion, emotionally, and mentally physically, because I was in the office at six every morning in Basel and yeah. I left at 10 o'clock at night. I was the first in last out simply because we were in a really, really difficult situation. I actually got a letter from the MD after the project was done, thanking me for saving the company. The company would have gone down quite simply because we were working with huge technology at the time that was undone. So we had lots of tests, et cetera. So it was all the external facade, if you like, of the building. So the green glass and the precast concrete. So physically very tough. I was away all week, um, young family. And what was the third one? The third one was just simply working with all these companies because I had to renegotiate deals and basically say, no, you're too expensive. We can't do with deal with you on that. 
from Ireland to Austria to Germany to wherever. So a lot of work to be done. And on top of it, and then I'll finish with that, my, t- <laughs> my team didn't really like me very much because oh, I was parachuting. Oh, I could do in. another podcast on that. <laughs> oh, my God, Chris. I thought we got along so great last time on the Zoom and we had so many shares. This is the second I one. Can't so tell you, I can't tell you so everything, Ashley. You know the first one. I love it. Bullying is the first one. And then the second one is my team didn't like me. <laughs> That's the title of a book. And my chapters will be about 500 pages each, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was that. So I, I, um, I, I guess a beautiful little story. I did in my best way try, because my senior designer was a woman and because the guy who was there before me was invited to leave or he was moved sideways in the company, um, having not done as good a job as he should. And she was very fond of him and not on me so honestly I I tried I gave her flowers I bought her chocolate I took her out for lunch (laughs) how did your wife like that (laughs) (laughs) my wife trusts me thank you thankfully I couldn't do what I'm doing if she didn't Um, so she didn't cave no she wouldn't she wouldn't give it up but she you know towed the line did what she had to do which was great but uh, yeah not not easy so in seriousness, Chris, on that subject, I mean, you know, one that cannot be taken lightly. And I do, I, I think you've just triggered a phenomenal, you know, podcast for me where I'll do a debate because, you know, that, that, that weight of politics that lives in so many corporates today and will continue to live, you know, and, the, and, and you, you mentioned a point that you're saying, well, my team didn't like me. And I'll tell you why they didn't like you. It's because you're focused, you're a hard worker, you're committed, you have a you know, a strategy. It's no nonsense. You don't do politics. You want to get the job done. And Mm -hmm. when you, when, and because that links very strongly back to the foundations and the values that you were raised, you know, good is Mm -hmm. good. Bad is bad. You don't want to, you know, you're not involved in that. You're just completely committed to the job that you need to deliver. And, and you're very right. That makes, you know, not a great boss for some people who are, you know, typically lazy or political or simply don't like that boat being rocked. And then when you're talking about, you know, a boss that uh, still favored, you know, the former employee, again, so many people listening, you know, will, will resonate to that. And it's, and, and if you just, you know, forever I'm talking to people and saying, imagine if you sort of brought all that negativity and turned it into positive, it would save hundreds of thousands of businesses out there if they only for right. a moment recognize that they were being destroyed, not because of lack of revenues or clients or potential partners or customers, just internally that mm. corrupt environment of, you know, politics and dislike because you are passionate it, it makes for a great discussion so I you know mm-hmm. as, as much as we're laughing about it of course I I'm very serious now about the subject because right. it's not it's not a great place for us to be in when we're trying to do a job and every single element you know you already really you're trying to work with something that's impossible you have the stress of you know so many other elements and then you're having to you know, on top of that, deal with the internal. It's it's just it's it's just unreal, and so many businesses, unfortunately, you know, are in that position, and will continue because sometimes they put a blind eye. Not sometimes, most of the time, they turn a blind eye. You know, so well uh, they do. And I think the other thing, Asil, that I would just add is that this, yeah. because it's not taught, it's not taught in school or right. any management um, or leadership group or whatever. Because yes. many of those who try and teach it 
have to be, they have to look at themselves. It's exactly. an introspective thing. You've got to look yes. in the mirror and say, am I a good boss or not? Am I Absolutely. open to, and all the rest of it. So yeah, you could, as you say, there's a lot to say um, on it. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So then tell, tell me about the, the next move, you know, so how did you get into, like we were talking about gap and from, from being involved in MI6 projects? Yeah. Yeah. That was an, an interesting move. And I think, maybe the underpinning element there for me was opportunities will come your way and you have to be open and ready yeah. and not prevaricate about it. So to be honest, I'd reached, I mean, as you can see, I mean, I'd done other projects, uh, high rise towers and uh, in Frankfurt, in, in, in um, a project in Paris and project in London, all of which, you know, won awards themselves. So I'd, I'd kind of, if you like, I'd been to the top of the mountain, uh, if yeah. I can use that expression. And for me, it was like, okay, where to now? And the construction industry at the time was starting to be challenged by competition, um, low margins, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess my antenna was up for a change, but I did not expect to go into retail. And the way it came about was just a headhunter called me uh, sitting in my office in, in Basel, got a call, uh, Mr. Igwe, would you be interested in exploring an opportunity? I thought, yeah, sure. Why? So why not? We, we went ahead. And um, essentially it was Foot Locker who were looking for a, at the time, construction design manager but when they'd introduced me to the opportunity and I'd met the team they were kind enough to, sh to have me meet the team there was clearly nothing wrong with the construction and design department had really top guys nice. in it they were absolutely the best they could and in the second interview I, I still felt this kind of unease or dis-ease there was something wrong something I was missing so the final interview the second one in fact was with the CEO and I looked at him and I, I honestly and as well I don't know why but I just asked the question, how do you do your real estate? Now, yeah. my wife will be the first one to tell you that I know nothing or knew nothing about <laughs> real estate. Yeah. So it was a, a question from left field. I just, and he just, he didn't answer it, but I knew that I'd hit the Yeah, the you note. touched a nerve, yeah. I touched on something. And so I went back to Switzerland and, uh, you know, carried on with life. And a week later, the head of HR called me up and said, um, Mr. Igwe, we're offering you the position of, director of real estate, construction, design, and maintenance. I had the whole nine yards. I had the whole thing. It was all mine, but wow. the real estate was the key part. And I thought, so I phoned my wife because uh, she was living in Strasbourg. I was in Basel and I said, you know, I've, they've offered me this position. I'm going to be head of real estate. She cracked up with laughter. She burst out. She said, you know nothing about real estate. Why Amazing. did they give it to you? I said, that's not a fair thing. You know, you've got to be excited about it, which it was, um, but it was funny. So I guess the other key point is I knew nothing about retail and real estate, but I had to learn fast. Uh, we sure. were in eight countries, 220 and stores. And if you don't ask, you know, if you don't ask, um, that's a great example. If you don't ask, you don't get. I mean, you exactly. went in for something, saw an opportunity, put it out there. And clearly, mm. you know, obviously on the receiving end, they're looking at you and thinking, okay, super intelligent, amazing track record. Yes, he might not have the knowledge, but he'll certainly learn quick. I mean, you know, that is... All of these are the, 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 the reality of working really hard to achieve and building that reputation, isn't it? It is. And, and basically saying, I know nothing, so I've got to go out yeah. and, and learn from others, which is what right. I did, both at Foot Locker. And then again, as you said, um, I joined Gap. So I was at Foot Locker for three years and then Gap, who I joined for, for, for four years. And um, when I left Foot Locker, in fact, clearly I wasn't there anymore, but they won an international award for the best European strategy uh, going forward. So I was not able to 
take that accolade and that plaque my successor did but clearly he had not done the work for it so i sure the point I'm not, I'm not you know blowing my own trumpet i'm simply saying if you really work hard focus do what you yeah. need to do ask the right people around you you can get to where you want to so Absolutely. that's how i, I joined footlocker so and then yeah I mean, you know, phenomenal journey and really diverse, which is very exciting. So then, but before you set up your retail advisory, you also held, you know, a very, very solid role as head of retail for France and senior director for EMEA for CBRE for around eight years, a long time in a, you know, coveted role and for the largest commercial real estate services company in the world. I mean, you know, you're working with such a diversity of clients, you're working with high street, with shopping centers. I mean, that's a key role. And I'm sure that meant not only the pressures of the job and delivering, but a lot of travel and certainly must have been a lot of great learning. So let's talk about, you know, that role and then the key milestones that 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 role allowed you or enabled you to achieve within your personal development. Sure. Um, well, firstly, it was... An unusual move. Um, people didn't understand why I went from retail, and by the way, I I went through the largest shopping center uh, trade association, ICSC, the International Council of Shopping Centers. Yeah. And people thought that was weird in itself. Anyway, why would I go and join a trade association? Um, well, I was the fourth MD in five years. They had a problem, had to fix it, which I did, and then moved on. And so when I joined CBRE, which was a few years later. Um, again, they had a problem. The one, the main problem, I guess, there, there were several, but the main problem was they were, un, as you rightly said, the largest commercial real estate company in the world by far, uh, way bigger than the number two or indeed the number three. And yet in France, they were unknown. Let's, let's mm -hmm. be frank about it. So um, they were like, we're, we're number one or number two everywhere else. We just cannot be unknown, let alone, you know, number four or number three or whatever. So my main role was to help the brand rebuild itself or build itself, quite frankly, um, as CBRE, because it had morphed from different companies, um, to help it build itself into a recognizable French brand and also a pan-European one. So that was point number one. It was to become close to, arguably, when I left, we were number two, uh, probably still not quite number one. But yeah. um, for different reasons, number one was way in the game much longer and had a different business model to us. So that was the first thing is to build the brand, help it to grow into something. The other ones were kind of strategic uh, milestones to answer your question. Um, we had offices in different cities across France and we were the only big company to do that. Um, we focused on uh, building a shopping center team, building what we call a tenant rep team, which we both of neither of which we had before. Uh, tenant rep being, as you know, um, holding the hand of or, or accompanying uh, retailers and brands yes. themselves yeah. in their project. So that was not done before. Having a stronger cross-border presence so we could take French retailers out across Europe uh, or across the globe, as it were. So really um, very much client-facing, I guess, yeah. was the, the main thing. So for me, it was probably summed up in in the words of my um, one might say arch rival, but close friend. He was um, the head of the retail business for our main competitor. And he'd been a friend of mine for a long time. And he said, because he was one of those I told at the very beginning. And he said, look, Chris, um, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. The first is 
brokerage is really, really difficult. It's not like anything you've done before. Yeah. He was absolutely right. We don't have time to talk about that, but it was a very wow. different model um, in yes. the world. But he also said, um, I'm really delighted because finally <laughs> I get to have some competition. Um, I'm not on my own anymore. So having an yeah. adversary like you will be fantastic. But also it was just about finding ways for me anyway, to develop my own skill set in an area which I didn't have before and wanted yes. to have, but sure. didn't want to be a broker. Um, I respect the brokers. They do a fantastic job. But yeah. my focus had always been on consultancy and advisory. And, and that yeah. still remains the same today because it's a different skill set that you bring to the table. So uh, wonderful time, wonderful experience. And for me anyway, you know, I felt fulfilled my mandate, as it were. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, the world, uh, the world changes. So, I mean, that kind of takes us because I want to stay a little bit in that genre um, and takes us to sort of my next question. So, no, no surprise. Retail has been in a mess for I don't know how many, too many years. Let's just say too many years right now. So many that I can't even count. And of course, you know, this current situation with the pandemic has sort of spearheaded or accelerated the situation and, and I guess that head-to-head -head between you know the retailers and the landlords and so you know obviously we've all been reading that so many businesses have now you know lost their way have been forced to go into bankruptcy and what's really sad Chris is over the last five years again it's not because of this but over the last five years and this is just now like I said added to it is that we you know drive around the high street we're going into the malls and we're looking at endless rows of sort of vacant real estate. And, you know, mall providers are literally sitting there on in the U.S., all over the world, just with empty malls. And obviously now with this huge paradigm shift that's gone to online, it's going to even add more fuel to the fire. But one thing remains consistent is the stubbornness of the landlords. I mean, it seems to be this continuous dialogue and battle between the retail, the landlord, they're not moving, they're not budging, they're not, you know, the deals that they give are really laughable, I have to say. And of course, I've been on this side when I've negotiated those deals with the landlords, you know, and mm -hmm. it seems like, you know, refusing to provide solutions, even at a time right now where in, in the years they've been just sitting on this vacuum of real estate. What is the reason behind this continuous battle? I mean, it's like cut your nose to spite your face. I, I don't get it. So what are your thoughts, you know, on obviously the last few years as we've seen this and then now this is like, it's just unreal. And there still doesn't seem to be any dialogue going on. So why? Wow. Um, I know it's a big question. For you. It's really not fair. It's so a I'm big not question. You, like it's, it's your opinion on what, or, yeah, or, you know, what yeah. is your advice? Maybe said differently. Like how would you advise these people to stop, yeah. you know, this battle? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is that retail, and I think it's important, and I know you believe this as well, Asil, is that the retail is not dead. So all this stuff about, you know, we're going to the wall, it's not going to be the same, investors uh, may not want to invest anymore. 
there is nothing so creative and engaging as retail that brings yeah. human beings together. Exactly. So it brings people together in a place, which is a place to shop, a place to eat, a place to drink, social, um, social and whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And we need that. And boy, do we need that more than ever, having been yes. locked up. And in some countries, people are still locked up or being re-locked up, unfortunately, yes. or quarantined. Um, so we need to have places where people can belong. The problem is, and it's, as you said, been around for a long time, but now we have to find the solution, is landlords and tenants have this adversarial view of the way in which they should conduct business. I would say that one of the, I've, I've frequently referred to this, partly because I have a lot of interest, and I know quite a few people in that sector as well, but the outlet industry or designer outlets, yeah, as certain sure. of the major brands call it. The business model, as you know, is one which is around cooperation. In other words, the success of the outlet center is the success both of the operator, so they may be large, they may be small, but also the brands themselves. In other words, the brands, if have to look the very best that they can and do and drive sales. So there's a, <clears throat> excuse me, a minimum rent, um, which in many shopping centers exists as well. But there's kind of a, a baseline from which you start. And then everything is about how do you increase the sales and therefore the landlord gets their share through sure. um, turning the rent. How can, and I would say, for me, that's the model. Now, how that translates into reality, because I know that um, I'm sure you know about valuers. So the valuers are saying, well, you know, if it's a turnover rent only basis, how do we value the center um, yeah. because there's no fixed rent and so on. So without getting too technical, what I'm saying is maybe to answer what your question in one way is to say, let's look at a different model outside of the traditional or what we call full price uh, re retail world and see what can be picked from other areas and use that. The second is, and I'll take the example of, of Gap. When I was at Gap, one of the things that was a requirement is that every year, generally around Christmas time, which is not the easiest, you would go and work in the store. You'd work in the store, why? Because you had to understand how the store personnel were living through the most difficult period, Yeah. Um, not only in terms of sales, but in terms of client returns and whatever, and this is all before e-commerce. So you get in the shoes of those who are in the stores. And it was really important. It was exhausting, I'll be honest with you. Sure. Wasn't my favorite time. But landlords and tenants have lost that. They haven't oh, got the gosh. ability to see how the other party works. You know, what do margins mean? What do markdowns mean? What do yeah. rents when they're at a certain level mean in terms of overall sales and performance? And each center is very different. So it's almost like, and I probably finish on that, is to say one of the main things for me is that it's, it's a bit like, yes, we talk about the financiers, so there are the, there are the lending institutions, there are the banks, et cetera, that fund or support the, the, the landlords, the, the shopping center owners. But it's a bit like us being independents, allowing our accountants to tell us how to run our business. Sure. It's not. It's the wrong way around. It's about right. us knowing our business and then saying, what do we need in order for our business to perform? So this, at the same time, the, the leases are very much out of date. We haven't talked about oh, it. Well, we don't have time to talk about it, but yes. they're out of date and there's e-commerce as well. So how does e-commerce yeah. play into that? So we really need so the to- The whole model really, what we're saying is the whole model, model needs to be reviewed. And what, what's really frustrating is that, you know, it, it doesn't seem to be anywhere 
you know, I haven't seen to date, to date an example where they are actually actively, genuinely, I mean, they talk about, you know, regrouping and remodeling, but I've not seen anything happen. I, I tell you what the great news is that I hope this forces, you know, a lot of the old mom and pops to, you know, I remember a time where we had high streets full of the small business owners, you know, and they were flourishing mm-hmm. and they were dependent on their local production and their local, you know, um, mm. brands. And I, and I hope that this is also a time where we are seeing a lot more of those creative entrepreneurs or new brands coming up and creating these mom and pop businesses, because why, what, what I'm pointing to the fact is most of the high street and most of the malls are owned by two or three big groups in the world that dictate for the rest of the little guys. So mm. I hope that this, you know, has now put them in a position where, because so many of these groups are now obviously sort of at breaking point and themselves in a lot of trouble. I hope that that does sort of shift that focus to then make them think long and hard because the, the reality is that they're not going to come up with this new model, Chris. They're, they're going to be sitting on empty, empty streets. And we're seeing it. I see it every single day. And it, it's a real shame, um, this, you know, this it, seeing how retail has evolved, right, over the last sort of three or four decades. It's it's in a dire place. And you're very right. I love the fact that you said retail is not dead. It's not. It has always <laughs> been a bad experience. It's, but it's where is that good old fashioned experience or mindset versus today where, you know, there's a huge disconnect. Um, yeah, and, and let's not forget either, Asil, that the um, consumer behavior has changed pre-COVID-19 anyway. And COVID-19 has just accelerated that. So it's much more fragmented, much more yeah. complex. So there's a, there's, a, there's a problem that both the retailer and the, the owners have today, which is beyond their lease issues. Um, it's a part exactly. of it, it's beyond that. How, is the, how are you going to get the consumer back into the stores yeah. or into the shopping centers um, yeah. with in a place of security and safety and that desire to be together. So exactly. they've got a mutual <laughs> problem, which can be yeah. solved together, but they've got to get around the table. I guess the only thing I would say is that there are some landlords who've got it around the world, because I, I monitor quite a bit what's going on around the world in different places. And there are some landlords who quite rightly, don't wish to publicize, you know, the good deeds that they're doing. But um, there are some good signs, some good examples. But broadly speaking, you're right. I mean, that's maybe the 20%, the 80% is still, you know, going um, adversarial. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, as we were speaking the other day as well, we were talking about there's a lot of similarities between us and, you know, not just the background or the diversity of what we've done, but the fact that we tend to be, you know, completely drawn to sort of turn around, fixing problems, you know, more strategic restructures and all of that good stuff. So I know the reasons why I'm attracted to those roles, but why don't you <laughs> share with us what keeps you going back? You know, what is it about? Is it the thrill of the challenge? Is it the learning? Is you're just a sucker for punishment? I mean, <laughs> pick one. <laughs> well, uh... <laughs> I've never had that question asked in that way. So um, <laughs> most of the know, questions I've asked you bravo, have been usually asked, right? Bravo. No, they haven't been. Not in this way. So bravo to you. I mean, you're you're outstanding at what you do. Um, you get me to talk because people don't normally get me to talk. To be honest, I'm I'm a fairly private person, despite what people think. That's um, what I do. I, <laughs> so you're doing it incredibly well. So sucker for pun. No, it's it's about chasing the solution. I like to find, I believe that I see the answer. Yeah. Seeing the answer isn't enough because especially when 
as you and I do, we deal at, you know, C-suite level. So CEO, CFO, COO, uh, very often they see a different thing or yes. not or much more into the mundane or the everyday. Um, huh? And what I see is something totally different. And let me use one example uh, of many that I have. But when I brought Michael Kors into France, yeah. um, everybody knows the brand, um, had the pleasure of locking horns with John Idol, who's the global CEO. Sure. And he was absolutely clear that he did not want to be in the street or indeed the shopping center later on, which I had felt was best for him and for the brand. And so we kicked this around for ever and a day, uh, almost lost the deal that he eventually wanted, but we've gone, you know, 18 months down the road and the deal was actually being negotiated by somebody else. And so I had to get in. So there was a kind of a double issue. On the one hand, how do I get them into France safely and successfully? And equally importantly, because when John Idle phones you on a Friday night and he says, you know what, Chris, I don't care how you do it, but you can't lose that deal. You can't Mm -hmm. lose that deal. And I'm going, well, if we'd done this 18 months ago, we'd have done it. (laughs) and we'd have been safe. Now I'm into territory. No one wants to hear that. (laughs) Exactly. And it it was a very complex deal to unravel for various different reasons. We got there in the end, but boy, was it, uh, was it tough, but that's, the sort of thing I like doing. I like the success. Yeah. I like being challenged. I like the fact that some people don't believe you can do it. Yes. So why would you, um, and, and, you know, I'm not ego driven to that degree, although my wife would, would wholeheartedly disagree with that. She says, I wear my <laughs> ego on my sleeve. I'm but... so intrigued. I've got to interview her too, just to know more about you. The real uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she'll tell you so much. I don't want to hear. So, um, <laughs> Uh, so ego you've got to be driven I mean I do embrace the fact that ego has its place because if you don't have it then it's people are going to browbeat you they're going to knock you down and say you can't achieve something so I love strategy I love solving problems I love repositioning things I love looking forward but I'll be honest as well if I've done it it's kind of I've done it I don't want to yeah I don't want to carry it on. So if I go back to my ICSC um, example, the International yes. Council of Shopping Centers, I came in two years, hard work, um, had to reposition the company. I did. And then it was just about managing. I, sure. I can manage. Then it becomes I complacent. Enjoy. It becomes standard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So people yeah. followed, you know, other MDs after me and they were grateful for me, um, you know, re setting the, the the company on track and that's you know so I love grappling getting it solving it and moving forward so but sure. beyond that I, I don't know I probably have to think a bit more but I think maybe just yeah a couple of other things I like bringing teams together yeah sure. uh, I like building teams I like working across different markets um I like delegating as well I'm I'm good at delegating mm-hmm. so whilst mm-hmm. I will set the roadmap I'm very comfortable leaving those who are competent to get on with what they have to do so sure. it's it's a combination of, of many, yeah. many skills, uh, which I, I enjoy putting to the, bringing to the fore for uh, the client. I get it. I get it. And yeah. it's, it's a, you know, it's a huge, you know, accomplishment and it's wonderful when you see the end game, right? Because especially like you said in the beginning, it's so tough because you're trying, you believe, right? You can see it and trying to get everybody on that bandwagon to start to see it too and sort of aligning to that vision. But then when it starts Mm -hmm. to sort of kick in and that dynamic and the momentum and that energy that you're driving, it's, it's a phenomenal feeling. And, you know, Mm -hmm. for me on a personal level, one of the things that drives me and I'm always saying, 
because there's nothing more exciting for me to know that I'm coming in and aside the business that I'm impacting the change in the individuals that are in that company mm. um, on a number mm. of levels, you know, on a number of levels, because you also have to make very tough decisions when you're going into sort of a turnaround or, or a reset. So, <laughs> but it's so gratifying uh, to mm. be able to join businesses and then you know because I'm very I'm very involved in the businesses of course and I love the fact when I see that all the way down to you know the security guard that you've changed somebody's life you've really impacted and made a difference you know and Absolutely. and that that for me is like food for the soul right so yeah, it, it, it is, is it's an incredible achievement and actually I posted something today on my Insta saying, you know, for me, success isn't defined by sort of position, rank, status, materialistic. It's knowing that you're in a position, no matter what it is, to affect positive change. That mm. is so powerful that you know what you're doing is going to make a huge difference. And so, mm. yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal place to be in. So you, you're yeah. obviously entrepreneurial, you know, throughout your career, we've talked about. And so tell me now, so it's natural. It's natural that you're now have your own consultancy advisory, you know, similar to myself. So what exactly are you focused on when you're advising? What would I come to you for? It depends um, on what area, because... I'm, a, I'm made up of many, as you know, different facets. So the, the main one, I guess, which we've talked about is, is retail consultancy. So advising retailers, brands, but also shopping center owners and investors on the retail landscape. So if, for example, you are an investor or owner and you're grappling with those questions you raised earlier on of uh, where is retail going? Should I continue to invest? Should I divest and all the rest of it? Yeah, I might be part of a think tank or I might be consulted on a specific project as I was in the have been in the past yeah. uh, where an investor wants to buy something and just needs to know if the asset, the retail asset or retail piece has a future attached to it. If you're a brand, a lot of what we are focusing on now is assessing the portfolio of retailers. So those who, whether they're in their lease period, out of their lease period, whatever their issues, how do they, so basically we negotiate on their behalf. So we'll go to um, go to the landlords and try and get better terms or deals or indeed exit as the case may be. So from a retail perspective, those would be the, the two main ones, uh, yeah. but I'm also very involved in, in trade associations. Uh, so the Urban Land Institute, giving leadership and strategic input and advice. Um, as you know, I've been recently appointed as a global governing trustee uh, of ULI, which is a very prestigious and wonderful and unexpected position, I should say. I was not but aware. Well deserved. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. So it's, I guess that's the concertina piece. So at a very international slash global level, what can I yeah. input into the industry to help us define what cities should look like, what urbanization will look like, what mobility will be like, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And then at a very ground floor level the issues and problems that retailers or landlords have today is to work through that and then <clears throat> excuse me beyond that is um anything from um lecturing so I, I i enjoy lecturing i enjoy sharing i do keynote speaking um and many other different things in between so it depends on what facet is of interest to, to somebody but also to be honest as you can imagine what i'm interested in and passionate about so if something comes to of me course, and it just doesn't of course it's got to click yeah yeah, yeah. Exactly. no totally so you know and and then 
that again leads me nicely to that you are very passionate about coaching, you know, knowledge transfer. Again, it's a lot of the investment of your sort of learnings and people sort of, and, and that, that for me, again, is very similar. And, and for me, it's all about sort of leaving a legacy because we're here for us, you know, for a moment and that moment needs to make a lot of value and sense to others. So that's what mm-hmm. I believe. So again, talk to me about what it is about coaching and mentoring that you love. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's a part that I'm, I've had the privilege, firstly, I guess, to, to, to begin. I, when I was in my mid-20s, early 20s, maybe uh, discovered by accident this path of personal development and, and growth. And so I've traveled all over the world, literally for, for many, to hear and literally, to use the expression, sit at the feet of many great coaches, mentors, individuals, obviously Tony Robbins, for example, is at a whole different level. And I've done the firewalk in London, uh, which is pretty amazing itself. And then many others who people will not have heard of, but in that industry, I wanted to know as much as I could learn about myself and how I could grow and how I could then pass that on to our children, but also to other people. And so I've had the privilege of of coaching uh, and mentoring as well, but coaching primarily to children so some parents have come up to me in my church for example and said you know would you be able because I I used to run Sunday schools and and things like that so they say you know can you can you support us with our child who's a little wayward or we're not sure or whatever so I've I've been able to coach and accompany children uh, right the way through to adults so single single moms yes or or moms who are a little bit worried about where they're going in there in their couple or in their family, and then, of course, professionals as well. So it's really giving to them what I have had the privilege of learning, to be honest, what I've invested in, because when you fly to the US or Canada or Australia, for that matter, on your own dime, because the company doesn't pay for you, um, it's my own journey, uh, hotels and everything else. You can imagine the bill stacks up. So I've invested in all that, but I'm happy now to, well, I always have been, but now to, to share that knowledge, insight, and ability. So it's just part of my, my supporting other people by giving them a helping hand to where they want to get to. And very often, as you know, they don't know where they want to get to. So that's sure. part of the journey. No, I definitely yeah. know. I definitely know. And you know what? We were all in that same place. You know, we started mm. off not knowing what we want and then sort of finding our way through as we get along. So I, I want to sort of change the subject um, or maybe, I mean, it's, it's, it's related, but you, you know, you, you've lived and traveled all over the world and obviously you met your wife in Scotland and you know, you're a mixed race family, right? And you have now mm. four children, incredible children, one which I have been, you know, very lucky to have met, Olivia, who's super phenomenal. What an example, you know, for both of you, your you and your wife to have. And I'm mm. certain your other kids are equally as dynamic and intelligent. And, and, you know, we're hearing, I spoke to Olivia about just the whole craziness of sort of the Black Lives Matters and this incredible movement that's happened. But at the same time, this very frustrated use of it now and how it's sort of become marketing and it's kind of moved into a whole quite unnerving direction you know where you're seeing obviously the marketing element and something that should be so natural so natural for us is is not shouldn't be on top of mind you know when it comes to hiring or this diversity so for me I said I was saying to her it's I've never understood you know I've never understood I can't get my head around this whole 
this this entire you know racist or this deeply embedded social you know sickness i guess that that there is and you know i was i i half uh half um, from the middle east i'm half indian you know i was bullied to death when we were kids in the uk and you know everybody has a story to tell but mm. for me i i want to ask you i guess three things one of them is at the time when you were married how was that for you on a personal level and then the second one is what are those teachings and learnings for your kids because they're yeah. also you know have gone through in their earlier life and will continue and then what is your thought on what's happening i mean so let's start with the first one i mean how was hmm. that when you got married yeah that's um that's a fascinating one in terms of what i learned and to be honest what my wife learned as well yeah yeah because uh we <laughs> she was um she was born into and raised in a in a well well to do to put it mildly family and lived on the west coast of uh, of, of scotland and uh, we met in edinburgh and i've come from a very different background as as you know so it was an interesting encounter but when she first took me to meet the family uh, and to be precise they live their home was in troon and yes if anybody plays golf uh, their house used to look onto the troon golf course so you know not a bad place to be and on the first weekend, well, the Sunday, we drove over and we went and walked along the beach of Troon. And yeah. for me, it was just, I just walk and that's fine. But she had noticed, it was very, very difficult for her because it was the first time that she noted, firstly, I was probably the first black guy that had walked through Troon in about a hundred years or something. <laughs> oh, everybody, wow, what a great accolade. <laughs> everybody was stopping. And oh, one guy wow. almost walked into a lamppost just looking. Ah. He just couldn't believe he'd see a black man. And this was disturbing for, well, oh we weren't married God. at that stage. It was disturbing for her. So that was the first worry. The second is we walked along and went to uh, my sister, future sister-in-law's restaurant where she, she had a restaurant. And you know the old movies, Asil, where you walk in, you open the saloon doors and, you know, the, the music <laughs> stops and everybody turns towards you. Yes. Well, this is exactly what happened. This is exactly what happened. Chris, no way. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So oh, I walked in. My, my, I mean, my wife-to-be, she said, we can't. We can't stay. We've got to go. I, I can't deal with this. And I said, no, we're wow. here. The door's open. So we went. We didn't stay very long because she was really uncomfortable with oh. the whole thing. Um but it was because I was carrying her burden, as it were, as yes. opposed to mine. Because as I say to people, I've been black all my life. So wherever sure. I go, people yeah. are going to act or react in a certain way. You either embrace it or you do whatever you need to do. Um, yeah. When I was younger, I'll be honest, I had a very violent temper. Uh, so, you know, getting into a fight was kind of a cool thing. I quite enjoyed that. Um, yeah. But uh, I grew out of that, thankfully. So it was more about how she was dealing with it as opposed to me. I found it all rather interesting not so much amusing in the sense of being, you know, belittling it, but I found it sure. interesting as part of the, the learning process. Wow. Uh, so that was one thing. And then as we grew and got married and, and uh, obviously everything else that, that came about, we were both more aware and to bring it to the children of how would we want to bring our children up as a yes. mixed race in which country. So we literally looked at which countries we want to be to raise yes. them in and which yeah, cities yeah. and where we wouldn't want to raise them. So um, in in deference and respect to to your listeners, I, I won't mention which countries we preferred sure. not to, to live in. Sure. But we made some very conscious choices about the way in which we wanted to allow our children to grow up. And, and then through that, we just gave them 
some benchmarks. So the values, which we've touched on at the very beginning, same yes. thing. So they had to have a sense of values. They had to embrace who they are. They had to embrace their color and mixed race. Uh, they're very proud to be part Nigerian, part Scottish, and put that forward um, very strongly. And we just gave them what any good parents would do, which is the listening ear. We always listened. No, no yes. question was too tough or too difficult. Um, and we also allowed them to choose what they wanted to do or be in life. And each of the children have got their own path. Uh, very, yes. very different. But when we come around the meal table, because that's obviously the main place, it's just like it's home. So everybody can be and say whatever they feel like saying, get what they want to off their shoulders and, and so on. So we just basically brought the children up with a sense of this is what is happening in the world. This yeah. is what you are likely to face. And here is how we suggest you face it. Um, and if it's a problem, you come back to us. Home is always home. And we've taken as a family something from, we had it before, but uh, I guess the, the closest is the movie uh, Fast and Furious, um, yeah. which is a uh, very, you know, we, love, we like action movies anyway, but that whole notion of the family being important. Yeah. So for us, whatever, one of their compasses is always, if I'm going to do this, how would the family feel about it? You see, they've mm -hmm. always got that sort of leaning. Uh, the family has a sort of measurement. And all of us are so not just mom and dad, but the rest of the family. Of uh, so how that's, yeah, so how that's affected them, we talk about it. I mean, one or two of them are more passionate and into the Black Lives Matter piece, if I touch on that now. And yeah. the others are aware of, but don't see that as a central theme to the way in which they lead their, their life. So, um, yeah. and it's interesting to, to allow that to flourish, to hear what they have to say, but also to manage it. So for example, one of our daughters wanted to go into Paris at a particular time and be part of the Black Lives Matter yes. um, yeah. uh, march. And so we sat down and talked about it. And yeah. we came, with, came up with a decision, but I wanted to know why she wanted to go what it yes. meant to her and why she was so passionate about it. Um, yes. And I think that's important. It's continuing to talk about it. But the, the underlying thing to come to the Black Lives Matter piece is the, we have a lack of, I, I guess uh, we've been failed globally by our education system. Yes. Um, if I go back to my, my mum, who was a teacher, headmistress, and two things she always said, uh, which she would provide for us as children. One is food on the table no matter how tough things were in education, education in terms of studying, but also in terms of life. Yeah. And we have missed the boat as adults, as parents, uh, individually, but also corporately and you know, governmentally, if you like, um, yes, yes. all for different reasons. And, uh, you know, there's a multitude of complex reasons why that is the case, but we, we've lost the education piece. And if we could sure. get that back, that would be a big step. So to answer your the, the end part of your question on Black Lives Matter. I too, like you, am disappointed, concerned is not the right word, disappointed that yeah. companies have jumped on this bandwagon of making yeah. it, uh, you know, our son, for example, he's got, he's got quite a combination of Black Lives Matter t-shirts that he orders all over the place and, and um, which is fine. He, I just say, why do you order it? He said, well, you know, I quite like it and it's, it's important, but he's, it's, it's, it's not criticizing him by any stretch of the imagination, but what he's showing me there is the many companies who are using the Black Lives Matter logo marketing yes. piece, exactly. Yes, and so exactly. we, we then have to re-explain to him 
yeah. fundamental reasons, which he understands. He's, you know, he's very switched on. He understands. But that's the part that I think is sad. But then yes. in between all that, let's be honest, there are some organizations, some companies who are doing a phenomenal job. And I do believe it's coming from the heart where there sure. is investment over the next 10 years into communities, into schools, into projects. That's where it should all begin. It's getting back into the the, the ground floor level and then building it up from there. Well, I uh, hope so. I hope so. I mean, I did, uh, I, I posted or I launched yesterday a fantastic podcast with a great, very empowered lady called Marsha Fry. And, you know, she is an education and that's like, we, we spent most of the conversation talking about the education and governmental systems that are really responsible mm. for, you know, leading that change and sort of culling that ignorance. So, mm. Yeah, it's a journey. And, and you know, I, the, the great news is it's become an apparent one. And now it's about, you know, how do you just make it part and parcel of your lives, Chris? It's 2020. <laughs> it's crazy. Exactly. I mean, I, that's, literally, that's it's just thing. so bizarre for me. But um, mm. so we're going to be wrapping up uh, pretty soon. And I think I'm going to mm. make this part one and part two, because this is probably the longest podcast I've ever done. Um, <laughs> but it's just it's just like me. Blame Blame me, Essel. Blame me. Totally. I mean, you just happen I, I to be this like super, you know, inspirational <laughs> individual, Chris, and therefore I'm going to definitely have to sort of part it because it's a, it's a fantastic conversation we've had. So, what does the future look like for you? I know that you shared with me that you're publishing a book. Um, so, tell me a little bit about that and what your sort of vision is for that. Sure. Um, well, thanks for the opportunity, because um, literally, as at last week, um, the publishers had notified us of the publishing date, which is great. So I could bring it to you. So essentially, uh, and I'll come on to the book in a minute, we're publishing November 20th with uh, Emerald, Emerald Publishing from the UK. And the book itself, because as you by now know, I kind of do things in an interesting, eclectic way. So the book is being authored by six of us, five women and myself, the lead authors. Uh, You're Melton a brave man, Chris. You're a brave Bettina. man. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, that's the pain part, you know. That's the... <laughs> oh, okay, take it easy. Hold on a second there. <laughs> okay. uh, but it's interesting because we all come from, I mean, two criteria for the book, uh, and I'll come to the title in a minute. The first is that... Uh, we wanted to, and we organized 145 people to provide interviews based on the themes that we brought forward. The minimum requirement was they had to have lived in two different countries. And those two countries didn't matter where they are on the globe. So we, we did pretty much cover most of the globe. Um, wow. But the four, six of us come from Germany one lady from Germany, two from Turkey, one from Russia, one from Guatemala, and myself from Nigeria. So we wanted it to be literally consistent with the title, which is called The Secrets, well, not The uh, Secrets of Working Across Five Continents. And the mm -hmm. subtitle is Thriving Through the Power of Cultural Diversity. Nice. So some of what you've touched on already, we wanted to bring to the fore how collaboration and diversity are really the drivers, if you like, of innovation, which is very much part of what the world is or is becoming, but not without its own challenges. So what are those challenges as seen through the eyes of various individuals that contributed? And so we have four main chapters, if you like, and my chapter is called, as you would expect, I guess, visionary and authentic leadership. So nice. I have drilled down into what that means, what that looks like, 
not from a historical point of view, but from a where do we go from here in order to, in order to create leaders for the future. And so that book we're very excited about because it's been two years in the making, well, more than two years, to be honest. And um, our publishers loved the idea, found it very unique, very different. We do as well. Yeah. And so we want to make it um, and move out the, the conversation. So that's the plan for the book. And on the back of that, I guess, um, yeah, we do, you know, um, probably uh, take it to not to market in the sense of generically speaking, but we've already been contacted by um, a company who would like us to focus a few things on a consultancy basis. So how can we bring that into their leadership and support them? So, but we're not going to do anything until the book's published. Brilliant. I mean, I'd love to, when you publish the book, uh, host all of you as a group to talk about it. That would be fantastic. Oh, wow. That would be cool. Yeah, very cool. I think, you know, it would be a a brilliant opportunity to have all the founders and the authors together and talk to me a little bit about each and every one. So that definitely is a date for that. Mm. um, But you realize that makes, but also you realize that makes it one guy against uh, six ladies then. So you're, you're you're on to me, Chris, you're on to me. That's exactly (laughs) what I'm looking forward to, my friend. Seeing these four women and one guy and let's see how you survive. Well, actually it's going to be five women and a guy. Hey, listen, that's a great title as well. Now I told you, I shared with you the book that, you know, my husband's been writing about me, Mm. which is, I think it's like a five years now he's been writing that. And I did tell you that title is driving Miss crazy, Mm. but um, so, yeah, so you've got driving Miss crazy and the four other, chicks and then yeah well good luck to you Chris good luck to you my man so uh, just before we end this absolutely delightful podcast I've had such a great time and I really sincerely hope you have as well I have. um I, I'd love for you to you know f- uh, finish it on some inspirational and motivational words to our audience and listeners out there yeah thank you for that Asil and yes it's been a fantastic um podcast and discussion with you you've you've um really, like I say, helped me dig back into some of the things I'd forgotten about, to be honest, which was, uh, which is great. Nice. Um, words, possibly. Well, sentences. <laughs> yeah, sentences. I mean, one of the things I would say is whatever you do or whatever we do, do it with passion, energy, enthusiasm, but absolutely underpinned with integrity. I think there is too much, I know there's too much of the waving in the wind as far as what needs to be done uh, in the world as to what's going on. So we need to have that fundamental piece of of integrity where you stand firm in what you believe, how you're you're doing it. So those would be the main ones. But I would say also, you know, your limits are only in your mind. They're only set by what you think. I hope that my life tra- trajectory uh, has yes. shown that you can go in whichever direction you want you just have to be committed to it know there are going to be bumps along the road and really just work through it so um and then I, I i thought when you asked me that question i thought it's interesting because if we just anchor it once again with retail there are four yeah. or three brands whose taglines i love and i think they kind of summarize what i would say in terms of the motivational piece so the north face yeah. uh, their tagline yes. is never stop um what's the word never stop exploring that's it never stop exploring adidas is you know nothing is impossible and nike is just do it so if we just do those three things never stop exploring because it's a beautiful world out there nothing is impossible because nothing is 
and let's just do it. So let's not just debate it, make decisions and get on with it. So Chris, I hope what, Phil, that has been good for you and helpful to you. Amazing. Your amazing. What a, what a fantastic way to end our podcast. And I'm certain, Chris, this is going to be, you know, one of many moments that we have together. And I thank you so much for your time. It's always so inspiring and really motivating to speak to you. So you have a beautiful sunny day in Paris and I will certainly speak to you very soon. I look forward to it, Asil. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's been wonderful to chat to you. Have a fabulous Thank day you. as well. Take care. Thank we'll you so soon. much. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.